Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Rodney Crowell's It Ain't Over Yet, the Americana Music Association's Song of the Year and a 2017 Grammy nominee for Best American Roots Song. Crowell, a Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame inductee, will join us later to chat about a remarkable career that has yielded classic songs such as Till I Gain Control Again, I Ain't Living Long Like This, Ashes By Now, After All This Time, and Shame on the Moon. Part One. So, Scott, I've actually been listening to a number of podcasts lately. Really? Uh, yeah, just kind of uh, checking out the competition out there, as it were. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think you and I had ever heard a podcast when we started this one, <laughs> and I kind of got on board. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you uh, have delved into that world. Yeah, I actually thought it was all going to be video. Like I thought it was called a podcast, and we were just going <laughs> to look at our, our awesome bods. Um, yeah, only recently found out. Because we got them. Yeah. Um, so uh, we can start doing these episodes with our shirt on, apparently. <laughs> Um, but one of the things that I've noticed as I've listened to a lot of these podcasts is a lot of them have like 10, you know, different advertisements as you go through the whole thing. Like, right. Uh, it's just one thing after another, you know, carpet cleaner. Right. Followed by, you know, where you get your oil changed. And I, I'm snake actually snake oil, <laughs> snake oil. <laughs> um, I, I was actually proud to listen back and say, you know what? We've got one sponsor. We've got one company that we feel strongly enough about to work with and present to you on our show, and that's Pearl Snap Studios. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I definitely have never had any interest in uh, hawking somebody's uh, product or service just because they say, hey, we want to you know, get on board with what you guys are doing. And right. we have had some people reach out to us uh, with that very thing, and it's kind of like, mm, totally. I don't think that's really something we feel good about. But um, Yeah, we don't just have one sponsor because like, you know, we're lame. Yeah, I mean, we're not losers. <laughs> Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously though, but and also we we like the fact that that we're not just constantly distracting you guys with like, hey, here comes another ad. Um, but uh, Pearl Snap Studios, Justin is a guy that that I've known for years and done a lot of work with, and you've heard us talk about Pearl Snap here, uh, and a lot of you have actually uh, taken your songs to Pearl Snap and seen the results for yourself. So uh, once again, here's an episode brought to you by the great folks at Pearl Snap Studios. And if you've got a great song and you want to get that song put into a form that you can pick and that you can share with other people and try to take that next step with your songwriting career, go to pearlsnapstudios.com. You can send them an MP3 of a guitar vocal demo, piano vocal, whatever you got. Doesn't matter how rough it is, Justin and those guys will work with you to realize what you really want to have on that recording. And uh, they'll hold your hand every step of the way, give you tons of input, and it'll be an amazing experience, we promise. Pearl Snap Studios, great recordings in a snap. <laughs> I think Justin's going to have to pay you now to, to for coming up with that great jingle. That's pretty Is great, that a jingle? Right? No, it's a tagline, uh, I guess. Yeah, it's a logo. Yeah, yeah. We'll probably be hearing from Justin <laughs> that he's done with our tomfoolery. His attorneys. <laughs> 
So uh, we're about to get into this Rodney Crow interview, and uh, it, you and I had a chance to be in Nashville at the same time yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah, uh, I was occupied with some writing and tons of family stuff, right. while you were just chipping away at Songcraft. Uh, you know, working away. You did three interviews. I did. I did three interviews. But before we talk about that, I want to point out that you weren't just busy uh, writing and, and doing family time because. I saw you on the local Channel 5 News in Nashville standing on stage at the ASCAP Christian Music Awards that's true. with a with an award in your hand, sir. Yes, that's true. So uh, I know that you are a, uh, you pretend to be a humble guy. <laughs> I uh, pretend to be humble. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't want to bring that up, but yeah. uh, but you, you were actually in Nashville being honored as well. Well, that's true. It's a part of the ASCAP Christian Music Awards. Uh, it was quite an honor to be there. I think the reason that we made it on the news is because uh, our award happened to be first up in the show. And I think <laughs> the camera guys realized they could get a shot and get home pretty quick. Right. Um, and uh, let's be honest, the camera loves me. Yeah, well, clearly. Right. Uh, my, my bod. <laughs> yeah, I think it gives it, it's the shine off the head, yeah. I think, that, it's uh, good that they like. you know. Um, so congratulations well, to you. thank you. Thank for, you for pointing that out. For your ASCAP uh, award. That's very cool. Um, but yes, I was in Nashville uh, and... Um, you know, the Ken Burns country music documentary has just finished airing for the first run through. I'm sure it'll continue to, to air again. Yeah. Um, Amazing. But yeah. Really, really well done. Um, you know, as a country music uh, historian of sorts, you know, I, I have a little few little nitpicky things that I might say about it, but I'm not going to say it because you know what? <laughs> it's way easier to criticize something than it is to make something. And right. that was an ambitious well-made documentary um and i i'm already seeing you know a lot of people who haven't particularly been interested in historical country music start chattering about it and and friends of mine just yeah. coming up and being like hey have you seen this it's, it's really great um so you know we decided while there's this moment that people are interested in ken burns and country music we will crassly capitalize on that. Of course. Um, and so <laughs> I sat down with three of the people who appear on screen uh, in the Ken Burns documentary, Rodney Crowell, who we're going to be talking with today, uh, hearing from, you know, on that interview. Uh, Alice Randall, who is the only African-American woman to have ever written a number one country song. Amazing. And then Marty Stewart, who is all over that documentary, yep. really like keeping the flame burning for, uh, for traditional country music and its roots and history. So I had the chance to sit down with, with all three of them in in Nashville, uh, talk about their careers, talk a little bit about, um, you know, their place in this, you know, grand story of, of country music. Um, and you know, man, it's, I'm reminded again this morning why it's so important to, to sit down with these people who have made contributions to the music we love, because, you know, we, we both kind of got some sad news yesterday that, you know, folks are not, always gonna be around they're not you can't take for granted that somebody's gonna be there tomorrow right um and so yeah a, a guy that you spent much more time with than i did but um yeah a songwriter named busby um who just had a lot of success uh, both in the pop world and in the country world um but even more than that was just a great guy um i had a chance to get to know him kind of in my early years out here in la about 20 years ago um before he had done a whole lot and um it was a group of guys that kind of got together to all trying to do music stuff and we got together to encourage one another and inspire one another um and he always kind of stayed that presence uh for me every time i ran into him or had a chance to cross paths he was always 
uh, encouraging me and inspiring me. Um, and I think anyone who knew him certainly looked at his work and just couldn't help but be inspired by it. So yeah. um, great loss uh, for the music and songwriting community today. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to his family, his wife and children. Um, yeah, yeah, just it's, a sad day. It, it's really a bummer. And, and I think people that, even people who might not know his name, I mean, the guy uh, was um, all over the place with all sorts of genres of music. And, yeah. you know, Marin Morris's My Church and 80s Mercedes, he wrote and produced those songs. Pink, uh, the song Try, which was big. Uh, Florida Georgia Line, H-O-L-Y. Um, Lady Annabellum, Rascal Flats, Keith Urban, Garth Brooks, Christina Aguilera, yeah. Jason Aldean, I mean, you know, Blake Shelton, it, every huge name in music, pop, country, um, Busby had contributed something. So obviously he was a man of great talent and a person of great integrity because you yeah. don't get to hang around uh, that long <laughs> and have yeah. that kind of sustained success, you know, if you're not the right kind of person. So, yeah. yeah. So our, our hearts go out, a lot, lot of a lot of songwriters and, and friends, uh, you know, hurting today. Um, and just we want to take a moment to to honor and remember Busby today on Songcraft. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we're taking this moment, this is very much a looking back. This is a reflective kind of day yeah. um, as we kind of transition into my conversation with Rodney. Um, you know, when you and I were in Nashville last week, we had the opportunity to get together with. Uh, four other guys and, and the six of us were kind of like a real tight friendship circle in, in high school. Yep. And even though we've all remained in contact and we've all remained close and we've all been together in various configurations, I don't think all six of us had, had been together at the same time since 25 years. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're really in this, in this kind of reflective uh, <laughs> mood right now, but, uh, I had not really spent, uh, any time with, um, with Rodney Crowell previously, but, I understand that you I, go I, way back. Yeah, I had spent some real quality time uh, with Rodney. Uh, his <laughs> his daughter uh, was in my elementary school class going all the way through. Uh, and so Rodney came to my fifth grade class yeah. uh, with his then wife, Roseanne Cash, and they uh, they shared some songs with us. Uh, in, uh, I, th I think it was near the library. Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly <laughs> what room it was at Oak Hill School. Right. Um, but I certainly remember and, and she sang, uh, I don't know why you don't want me. Wow. A song that we're going to feature here in the podcast. And man, I, I even remember at that time thinking, well, that seems like a cool job. Right. <laughs> you could do that for a living. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, even though I didn't get to spend this hour with Rodney, uh, I, I feel like, you know, my roots with him go pretty Pretty deep. Yeah, I think he probably uh, would have remembered you had I asked. Uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, oh, yeah, the, the kid with the bowl cut. Yeah, and, that kid. Yeah, yeah. The, well, I, we all had bowl cuts. Um, <laughs> and now I, I'm wondering if when you enjoyed this uh, private concert from, from Rodney and Roseanne, uh, were you sitting in what the kids today call crisscross applesauce? <laughs> I probably was. That's probably about the last year I could do it. <laughs> Before your feet just fall asleep. Yeah, there's, there's no way that my body could pull that <laughs> off now. It's just like two yeah. knees pointing up in my face. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's probably just... Just like as as you're listening at home, just just picture the cast of Stranger Things sitting around <laughs> listening to a uh, songwriter talk about what they do for a living. That's that's basically what it was. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, I was uh, at the Country Music Hall of Fame uh, in Nashville. Rodney was participating in a tribute show to Doug Som, um, and they had a rehearsal, and then they had a, about forty five minutes free. 
and then they had the the tribute show and i was able to grab rodney in those 45 minutes we we ducked into a uh an empty um conference room there and in, the, in the offices at the country music hall of fame was thrilled to be able to sit down with him for a bit hear yeah. about his amazing career and so uh now you'll get to hear it uh, along with everyone else right here for the first time yeah he's gonna be bummed when he finds out you weren't really from rolling stone <laughs> <laughs> part two Emmylou Harris, who once employed Rodney Crowell as the guitarist, harmony singer, and arranger in her legendary hot band, introduced many listeners to Crowell's songs, which then went on to become hits for other artists. Till I Gain Control Again was covered by Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, and Bobby Bear before Crystal Gale took it to the top of the country charts. Leaving Louisiana in the broad daylight and I Ain't Living Long Like This became number one hits for the Oak Ridge Boys and Waylon Jennings, respectively. Even Cowgirls Get the Blues went on to become a hit for both Lynn Anderson and the duo of Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings, while Ashes By Now became a top five single for Leanne Womack before going on to be covered by Etta James. While it was Harris who first shone the spotlight on Crowell, he soon established his own successful artist career, becoming the first country singer to earn five number one hits from a single album. His biggest self-penned singles as an artist include It's Such a Small World, She's Crazy for Leaving, Many Along in Lonesome Highway, If Looks Could Kill, Lovin' All Night, What Kind of Love, I Couldn't Leave You If I Tried, which was nominated for a Best Country Song Grammy, and After All This Time, which was nominated for both CMA and ACM Song of the Year and won a Grammy for Best Country Song. Crowell songs that have become number one hits for other artists include Bob Seger's recording of Shame on the Moon, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's Long Hard Road, The Sharecropper's Dream, Somewhere Tonight by Highway 101, Tim McGraw's recording of Please Remember Me, and Keith Urban's cover of Making Memories of Us. Additional highlights of his catalog include Vince Gill's top 10 recording of Oklahoma Borderline, Stars on the Water, which has been recorded by Jimmy Buffett and George Strait, Voila, An American Dream, which has been recorded by Guy Clark and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and Song for the Life, which was recorded by Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Kathy Matea, and Alison Krauss before becoming a top 10 hit for Alan Jackson. As a producer, Crowell was behind a string of hits for then-wife Roseanne Cash, including Seven Year Ache, Ain't No Money, which he wrote, and I Don't Know Why You Don't Want Me, which he and Roseanne co-wrote and which earned him his first of 16 Grammy nominations. Crowell has since been honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award in Songwriting from the Americana Music Association, the prestigious ASCAP Founders Award, the Academy of Country Music's Poets Award, and induction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. In recent years, Crowell has become an Americana darling with critically acclaimed albums such as The Houston Kid, Fate's Right Hand, The Outsider, Sex and Gasoline, and a pair of duet albums with Emmylou Harris, Old Yellow Moon, and The Traveling Kind. His latest album is called Texas. Rodney, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Your latest album uh, is called Texas, and I think... When a lot of people think of Texas music, they might think honky-tonk, they might think Western Swing, um, but there's all kinds of stuff. You know, there's rock influences, there's um, blues influences, sure, yeah. it's, a, it's a real, you know, the, the record is a, is a real amalgam of different Texas music. Mm -hmm. um, being a guy who, who grew up in Texas, talk a little bit about some of those influences that shaped you growing up and, and the ways that those are, you know, reflected on, on that new album. Yeah, well, I grew up, I was born and grew up in East Houston, the third ward, and then we moved out to a little to a bedroom community called Jacinto City, which was working class through and through. And music, you know, well, 
first and foremost, it was Hank Williams. Hmm. You know, it was like working class, east side, honky-tonk culture. Hank Williams was the kingpin of that. And my father w- was a hillbilly wannabe country singing star. Yeah. Local. He was a local musician. And uh, so Hank Williams was the beginning of it for me. Mm-hmm. And from the time I was four, I had a little record player on the floor and, and Hank Williams 78s, and I'd put them on and play them. You know, I was free to destroy them. <laughs> so that would be the beginning. But then, you know, it music started happening, uh, you know, Elvis and Chuck Berry and, you know, all of the things that you would hear, the popular music, Ricky Nelson, um, on my aunt. My aunt Mary Ruth, she had a an ear for rhythm and blues, and so with on her record player, you know, she was from Star City, Arkansas, hmm. but she first time I ever heard Frogman Henry, hmm. it was my aunt Mary Ruth. Um, she had a forty-five, and you know, she's the one. She started playing those those New Orleans R and B stuff. Yeah, and uh, that's where I I picked up on that. And as a matter of fact. She had the Dallas Frazier version of Elvira, <laughs> which I recorded on my first album. Yeah. I learned it uh, back when I was 14 years old. Right. Which is and, one of the coolest records. Uh, that's just such a groove. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a funny thing. When the Oak Ridge Boys did it and had a hit with it, they thought I wrote it. I had to oh, tell yeah. them. I said, no, I didn't <laughs> write it. Dallas Frazier wrote it. Um, wow. But Billy Gibbons and I were talking about, we did actually a, a videotaped interview. Do you call it videotape? Yeah, filmed interview. <laughs> right. Um, talking about regional music in mm-hmm. Houston when I was growing up. There was what, what I call the Mexican boxers, which is they would, it would, it was Roger and the Creations mm-hmm. and CL and the Pictures. And CL Weldon and Roger Weldon were brothers. They were boxers. But they had teen angst rock and roll bands, rock huh. bands. And they played around. B.J. Thomas and the Triumphs was, you know, B.J. went on to be bigger. But this kind of local scene that was going going on with, with that teen angst rock and roll right. as well as the TSU Toronados, which became Archie Bell and the Drells. Oh, cool. And then there was Lightning Hopkins coming out of the Third Ward with Country Blues. And uh, George Jones, you know, you know, he recorded in Houston mm-hmm. in the 50s. Yeah. Why Baby Why and You Gotta Be My Baby were recorded in Houston and, and broke out of Houston, I'm right. sure. Yeah. And B.B. King recorded his early, you know, 52, 53, you know, A uh, Whole lot of Love. One of my favorite B.B. King shuffles mm-hmm. ever recorded was recorded at Gold Star. Yeah. In Houston. So it's just a total, like melting pot. Houston of was a melting pot for different kinds of music. Yeah, yeah. Hillbilly, honky tonk, country blues, yeah, psychedelic. You know, yeah. The floor uh, fever elevators. tree and the thirteenth floor elevators yeah. were coming out of Houston. Yeah. So all of that music influenced me. Yeah. And of course the Nashville. Music influenced me greatly, and then you know the the Brits came over, the Beatles and and Bob Dylan. You know, I I, I picked up on Dylan in probably '64 with Subterranean Homesick Blues, mm-hmm. and dove deeply into that. I I 
the folk part of it I didn't pick up on until after I knew about that. Yeah. I wasn't so big on folk music, mainly because my dad was knew so many Appalachian dead baby songs and hmm. those kind of, you know, may I sleep in your barn tonight, mister, and put <laughs> my little shoes away. Roy Acuff. Yeah, right, uh, that era. Tragedy. Yeah. And so to me, that was folk music. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but then later I, I discovered what folk music really was. Yeah. Well, the earliest recording of a Rodney Crowell song that I could find uh, is You Can't Keep Me Here in Tennessee, which Jerry Reed uh, recorded on his 1973 album, Lord Mr. Ford. Cause you fall like a tree when you cut down And you've been too long hacking away at me Well, it's a long, long road I'm taking back to Texas Cause you can't keep me here in Tennessee how did you go from a music-loving kid in Texas to getting your songs cut in Nashville? Came to Nashville, uh, lived in, you know, in my car out at mm. the lake, came into town four nights a week. Well, I was in town every night of the week, but four nights of the week at least I could play at Bishop's Pub and pass the hat, make about $7 a night. Mm. Breakfast at uh, this, uh, this kind of drugstore uh, soda fountain was 69 cents. A dollar gas would get you around. And uh, occasionally I'd find a girl who thought I was interesting enough to uh, spend a little time with. And occasionally <laughs> I'd get a roof over my head. Yeah. Uh, but then I got a job, happy hour at the Jolly Ox in Green Hills, which is, you know, a steakhouse. Mm-hmm. And I was instructed by the man who hired me to never play an original song. <laughs> but it's, it turned out I thought I had a girlfriend, and then I found out one day that Towns Van Zant was making my time, <laughs> big time. And she didn't tell me. Right. Of course, I'd have stood down if she had told me, but Susanna Clark told me. Yeah. So in anger, I wrote this song called You Can't Keep Me Here in Tennessee and went it to the Jolly Ox and to defying my boss then, I played it. Hmm. He came down the hall, he came down the aisle and fired me and Harry Warner, who was Jerry Reed's manager, was right behind him and my boss said, well, you're fired. I told you if you played an original song, you're fired. Hmm. Harry Warner said, good, because we want to record that song tomorrow. Wow. And we also want to offer him a job as a songwriter, Man. on one song. Yeah. And Jerry, w Jerry was back in the back of the, of the club. Yeah. Um, and I went down to RCA next the next day, and you know, taught the the musicians, all these great Hal Rugg, right? You know, Bobby Moore, I think. Uh, God, all these great musicians, right. Dave Kirby, <laughs> and but. Chet Atkins was producing, and wow. I got there early, of course. Yeah. I didn't want to miss anything, and I yeah. walked in. Chet Atkins was sitting behind the desk, the recording console. So, did you write this song we're going to do? I said, yes, sir. Said, Come over here. Let me show you what we're going to do. Hmm. So I got an instruction from Chet Atkins on how a mic chain works. <laughs> Man. And then, since then, I've been a professional songwriter. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Um, 
Well, well, there've been certain artists who've really gravitated toward your songs and, and none more than Emily Harris, who's recorded more of them than I can even count. Um, I think the first was uh, Bluebird Wine, which opened up her career launching Pieces of the Sky record from 1975. Of course, you went on to, to play in her band and you guys have recorded a couple duo albums in recent years. Um, how did that professional relationship kind of start with, with you and Amy Lou? There's a bass player named Skip Beckwith who was uh, Ann Murray's music director. And Brian Ahern was Ann Murray's producer who had been uh, retained to produce Amy Lou's first album. And uh, Skip Beckwith came through Nashville and I met him through a guitar player named Bob Cardwell. I had a cassette of these songs that, you know, I started writing for the Jerry Reed Publishing Company. And yeah. So Skip Beckwith took them back to Toronto uh, for Anne Murray. But Emmy Lou had arrived, and uh, they opened up my cassette and listened to it, and Emmy says that, you know, she hadn't heard anything else that she liked until my tape come up. Hmm. And, you know, there were several songs that she eventually recorded on yeah. that tape. Wow. You know, people think of Emily Lou Harris as this great uh, song interpreter, and which she absolutely is. But she's also written some great songs, too. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, going back to her 70s stuff, um, you guys co-wrote some of the things like Amarillo from the Elite Hotel album and Tulsa Queen from Luxury Liner. Um I'd like to kind of get your perspective on Emmy Lou, the songwriter, which is something we don't hear about a lot. Always encouraged Emmy to write songs, and you know, our second duet album that we made, I said, we don't start until we, we've written, or you've written, or we've written together more than half the songs. <laughs> and she stepped up. But all the way back when I first met Emmy, you know, I recognize right away, you know, Emmy has a poet's soul. Mm -hmm. And in most really great interpreters have the poet's soul because they, you know, it's, it, you understand language. Frank Sinatra didn't really write songs, but he had the poet's soul. Yeah. Emmy has that poet's soul. So, uh, you know, and then when she would write, you know, it would, whenever it moved her, like Boulder to Birmingham, yeah. she wrote with Bill Danoff beautiful mm -hmm. so it was always there as far yeah. as I'm concerned yeah um, and then but Guy Clark is the one who challenged her you know I never really challenged her like this but Guy said you know something along the line if you don't if you don't write your own album I'm not gonna have any respect for you or something like that and right. so she wrote you know all those beautiful songs like Red Dirt Girl and yeah. Michelangelo and and mm -hmm. she took the bait from Guy, so yeah. we owe Guy for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one of those early songs of yours that Emily recorded was Till I Gain Control Again, which, of course, then went on to be covered by Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Jerry Jeff Walker, all on its way to becoming your very first charting single as a, a songwriter when Bobby Bear cut it in 1979. Out on the road that lies There are some turns where I will spin 
then Crystal Gale made it a big number one hit. But that's one of those songs that has become one of the absolute standards from from your catalog. Um, talk a little bit about that song, the inspiration for it. Well, I wanted to... I, I was hanging out late nights with, with a group of songwriters, you know, the Guy Clark was kind of the centerpiece of it. He was a curator. David Olney was around, you know, in that crew, and mm-hmm. and uh, Towns Van Zant would show up from time to time. I had Guy's prov- approval. He was he was generous that way and encouraging. He was a tough audience, but at the same time, he was generous and he would give approval. Hmm. But you had to. But it had to. It would be real yeah. approval. Towns was stingy about approval in <laughs> that way, and and I wanted to get Towns's, if not a you know Towns's approval. And this is after I understood that you know the girlfriend thing was fair game <laughs> in Nashville, <laughs> and you know Towns was cool, um, a lot cooler than me at that particular time, <laughs> and a lot more charismatic. So I understood. But I really wanted, but when Till I Gain Control Again is the first time I sort of got a hmm from Towns. I played it one night. He didn't show disinterest. He actually raised an eyebrow and kind of right. grunted, and I said, okay, I'm good. Right. I'm good. <laughs> His version of high praise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. Um, in 1979, Warner Brothers Records released your debut album as an artist, Ain't Living Long Like This, which uh, featured the classic Leaving Louisiana in the Broad Daylight. She said, never ever known it when it felt so good. Never ever knew it when I knew I could. Never ever done it when it looked so right. Leaving Louisiana in the broad daylight. You earned your first number one hit as a writer when the Oak Ridge Boys covered that song the following year, and then you earned your first charting pop single when the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band uh, covered an American Dream off that that same record. Um, I'm curious, at that point, as you were kind of emerging as an artist, you're still seeing all these other people cutting your songs. Were you or your publisher actively out there kind of pitching your stuff at that point, or were people just picking up on you as an artist? No. Emmy Lou Harris, we can thank for that, because people, artists, because of her records, they picked up on my, who is this guy writing these songs for Emmy Lou, hmm. and so they started finding me that way. Yeah, and uh, you know, by the time I released my first album, people got that album, and I, I don't, you know, most of the songs on there eventually became a hit. Yeah, um, and so that you know, I can thank Emmy Lou for that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, another classic off that first album is the title track, Ain't Living Long Like This, um, which became a number one hit for Waylon Jennings. And and kind of like Emmy Lou, I mean, Waylon really gravitated toward your stuff. He, he recorded yeah. a lot of your songs, was a, was a big champion of your songs.
I was working with a kind of a Texas boogie feel in, in my living room when I lived in Hermosa Beach, California. Hmm. And I had a dog named Banjo that uh, I, the tally was 47 leash law violations because I refused <laughs> to put him on a leash. Right. Because he was a smarter individual than I was. <laughs> I was his pet. So no way I was putting him on a leash. But, you know, they were pretty particular about animals yeah. in the beach communities down there. So the cops came to my door and arrested me for these leash law violations. Wow. Went right when I was first getting a sense of the feel for that song. Yeah. So I'd, I told my then first wife, I said, hey, there's some money in this drawer in there. Take your time getting me out because... I want to work on this song <laughs> in jail. And I did. I didn't have anything to write with, you know, right. so I, you know, the line about laying on the steel rail rack, I was laying on the steel rail rack composing. Wow. And, you know, okay, I got to remember this for when I get out of here, I got to write this down. So, you know, a good bit of, of the courses and, and, uh, and the last verse, you know, I wrote in jail. <laughs> <laughs> the outlaw of Hermosa Beach. True story. I never did pay those Alicia Law violations. <laughs> yeah, well, but you got a song that uh, earned you some good money, so mm -hmm. you came out ahead yeah. of the city of Hermosa Beach. Um, well, I want to ask you about Ashes by Now from your second album, What Will the Neighbors Think, from 1980. And that one was actually a, a top 40 pop hit for you as an artist. And, of course, a lot of country fans know it from Leanne Womack's top five version as well. that hook uh, as much as you burn me I should be ashes by now that doesn't appear until like after the two minute mark in, in that song yeah um, and to me that's such a great line but it's made even greater by the restraint you know that mm -hmm. it takes to till you get to that point um, well that song has a lot of restraint because I have a kind of a non solo turnaround there's two verses yeah. Normally you're going to get to the chorus on after. You can go two verses and hit a chorus, yeah. but I have a little non turnaround and another verse before we get to the chorus. Yeah. And much as you burn me, I should be ashes by now. Yeah, that's a cool line. But here's the thing. It was went and went on and went on and then one day I was in Austin not too long ago and Michael Martin Murphy was there and uh he was singing Wildfire, Rand calling Wildfire, and I and it just hit me. I said, "Holy shit!" I just totally ripped off his line, <laughs> just like a wildfire. I mean, it's just the same blazing arc <laughs> with that word. So I, <laughs> I went, you know, I, I waited till he came off, and I said, "God, man, I gotta." Apologize, or you know, I, I got to make some sort of atonement for this. I said, "Man, I have cruised on this for a long time, and I didn't realize it until this very day." And he said, 
I never noticed. <laughs> okay. All right. We're square. Then. <laughs> like, forget I said it. <laughs> um, do you think that in terms of, of that, you look at a song that, you know, you are highly regarded as a, as a great craftsman of songwriting. Do you think that those instincts of, of how to craft a great song for you is, is most of that instinct or is it, is it study and, and, you know, just working on that craft for years? It's probably both. I think, you know, I think I was knowing my mother and my father, knowing my father was a bit of a savant about he could hear a song once or twice and he would have it, mm-hmm. remember it. Uh, and it was, I mean, it wasn't just heartbreak country songs that he would do that with. He could do it with country blues mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Roy Acuff style stuff. You know, he just remembered. And then on the other hand, my mother was this glib uh she would rhyme stuff, you know, then and with with no purpose other mm-hmm. than, you know, as the day was going on, she might, you know, say, you know, call me to get up. You know, she might make up some kind of line about wake up, sleep ahead, you know, whatever. Yeah. I can't remember anything, but she played with words. Mm-hmm. Um, she was amused by words, but she was uneducated. So she had no, she had an eighth grade education and no real sensibility about structure. Yeah. So given those two things, you know, I was naturally born to be a songwriter. Mm -hmm. Early on, um, I started learning Beatles songs and Chuck Berry songs and Rolling Stones songs and songs from my bands that I was in, you know, Hank Williams, and I kept a notebook. Mm-hmm. Drop the needle on, get the lines, and I, and I kept, I wrote probably a hundred songs into this notebook. Wow. And so I was practicing at the age of 14 or 15 being a songwriter. Yeah. And in fact, I was actually writing down songs. They yeah. weren't mine, but so I, I had a natural inclination to write things down. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, with a long, you know, uh, working at it, you know, somewhere along the line, maybe drifting into my mid-30s, I realized that all of those, you know, that kind of inspirate, that kind of lightning in a bottle, ain't living long like this, or said that stuff was really happens in your early 20s, mid 20s, maybe up to 28. But as you mature and start to move through your 30s, I realized that I had to develop some sort of work ethic. Hmm. And which which I come to understand is that, man, I need to get back to the to my desk in the morning yeah. every day. And if I'm not on the road and I'm doing something like this, you can bet. When I'm up in the morning, I have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something, and I'm tinkering with the songs that I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. That's how they get here. Yeah. It's like inspiration to me now is not the big gift of lightning in a jar anymore. It's the gift of whoever doles out inspiration, Mm -hmm. checking me out down there going, man, he's proven his work ethic. Let's give him some. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
let's talk about Shame on the Moon, um, which of course was a huge pop hit for, for Bob Seger. Last year, you put out an album called uh, Acoustic Classics with a version of that song, Shame on the Moon Redux, with a little bit of reworking and, you know, talking about... More than a little bit. <laughs> talking about tinkering, you know. I think people kind of think of, well, once a song's recorded, it's it's set in stone and you can't mess yeah. with it. But I think it's really no. cool that you revisited that. I'd like to hear a little bit about why I you decided I rewrote it because I didn't it. like it. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, did, I, I, um, I let go of it prematurely. Hmm. I was recording, and I had, you know, that that really cool chorus, oh, Blame It On Midnight, and, you know, going to that B-flat from G, and I thought, well, that's really something. Yeah. And we were recording, and I, I said, guys, look, you know, listen, I got this, and we did it in one or two takes. And I really hated the last verse. Mm. I could tolerate parts of first verse and second verse. I mean, Bob Seger made a big hit, and I, and I said, man, I said, what about that last verse? And he says, oh, it's great. And I said, oh, man, I can't get anybody to agree with me. <laughs> and But I tinkered with it and tinkered with it and tried to rewrite that last verse. I stopped performing the song myself because Bob, Seger, Bob Seger's version was so... He owns that song, hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But when I was making acoustic classics, it dawned on me I'd been I'd spent 30 years trying to rewrite the last verse at least, and that's when I said, Oh, I need to rewrite the whole thing. Hmm. Keep the chorus and rewrite it all. Yeah. So rather than re sing it the way I did on my version or like Seeger, I just I was. So now, yeah, I kind of want to Leonard Cohen this a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I spoke it. I did a recitation, and uh, and the language really works that way because that's sort of the way I. And, and I, for my money, the verses are so much better. So it's more well written, mm -hmm. and it, I mean, there's real writer's instincts cleaning that all up yeah and it worked that mm -hmm. way but i tried to sing those new words the way S seager would sing it or the way i originally recorded it and yeah. it does not work huh it did not work and it's like and i really on this tour i wanted to do it and i realized well you know i'm gonna have to sing the old verses that i <laughs> didn't like yeah now I like them yeah and I like them now because the new ones satisfied my longing to have written that song better huh and then that's interesting that it's probably my most certainly my most successful song in one period of time sure yeah well that's but you know I I've been known to to spend 20 30 years writing a song yeah yeah it's amazing um well, you and Roseanne Cash were married throughout the 1980s, and you guys earned a, a Grammy nomination together for Country Song of the Year for co-writing uh, I Don't Know Why You Don't Want Me. I don't know why you don't want me. 
you know, of course, number one hit for, for Roseanne that you produced. Um, obviously, you know, you guys had a, a personal relationship, clearly, as a married couple. But in terms of a songwriting relationship, kind of talk about that dynamic. We didn't write a lot. To, we, I don't recall Roseanne and I ever sitting down to write a song together. Things would happen, and, uh, and I would help her finish something, mm-hmm. or she would throw something my way. One of my favorite songs that Roseanne and I ever wrote together, and I've, I've tried to get her to record it, I did it on Life is Messy. And uh, and I and I had this upstairs. I had this place where I wrote, you know, kind of my own little. I don't like man cave. I don't like that word. My own little place with some recording, just some guitars and stuff. And one day I went up and sat down to the desk, and there was a piece of paper with go out and hear a band at some club downtown, walk home in the rain, and let it soak me down. She had a couple of verses, and I don't. She says she didn't leave it on the desk on purpose, hmm. uh, but it was there, and it was her handwriting. And I, I saw it, and I just picked up the guitar and I started singing those. And then I wrote the rest of the song around those two pristine verses. Huh. And I don't, Roseanne, if you're listening, you really need to record this song. <laughs> it's the, the best we ever did together, yeah. and we didn't, and we didn't, we weren't working together at all. On yeah, it. but it was there, and it was the beginning of. Oh, there was a lot of pain in that song, and it, there was a lot of pain for me in that song because, you know, it hadn't become a reality yet. Consciousness, it hadn't risen up into. It may have risen into her consciousness, but not mine. Was that our days were numbered, mm-hmm. and so that song has it. Yeah. You know, the beginning of that heartache. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite piece of work that we ever did together. Yeah, wow. As, in terms of writing. Sure. We made a couple of good records together. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of Roseanne, the two of you had a number one hit with the duet It's Such a Small World off your 1988 album, Diamonds and Dirt. And that album was a huge set of record, five number one country singles off of a single album, including I Couldn't Leave You If I Tried, which was nominated for Best Country Song at the 1988 Grammy Awards. And after all this time, which won the Grammy for Best Country Song uh, the following year at the Grammy Awards, also nominated for CMA and ACM Song of the Year. And after all this time, You're always on my mind Hey, I could never let you go A broken heart that heals so slow Could never be for someone new While you're alive and I am too And after all this time You're always on my mind I still miss you After all this time uh, with Emmy Lou, we uh, Emmy Lou and the Hot Band, we were teamed up with Willie Nelson and family at, touring for a couple of years, mm-hmm. a lot. We were out on the road with Willie, and I was around Willie a lot, and uh, hung. You know, I'd ride on his bus sometimes with the guys and stay up all night and 
So there were trains, and we outrun this very Willie Nelson-ish. Mm-hmm. But I had, like, the first two verses for that song, and I had a melody, the melody that it is. But we folded a tent in, in Southern California and moved to Nashville. And about seven years later, um, I finally got around to unpacking this one box, and I found those two verses, mm-hmm. and uh, I remembered the melody. I remembered how it went. Wow. And so, and that's why it became after all this time. Hmm. After all, it's like, it was just ne- <laughs> a necessity in a way. It's like, yeah. wow, after all this time, I remember this melody. Well, after all this time. <laughs> and that's how that song came to be. Wow. That's that simple. Yeah. Wow. That strange. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Um, you closed out the 1980s and moved into the 1990s with additional top 10 hits like Many Along and Lonesome Road, If Looks Could Kill, and Lovin' All Night, which was later a hit for uh, Patty Loveless as well. The song from that era that I want to ask you about, though, is What Kind of Love, which is credited to you and, and Will Jennings and Roy Orbison. Um, would love to hear how that came about. Will Jennings. Will thought Roy and I had some sort of similarities, and uh, so he got us together, and we wrote one song. But then Roy passed away, hmm. and sadly, and Will called me sometime after it, and he said, man, i got to come by. So he came by and he said, he had a little cassette with a piece of music, the beginning of that melody with Roy singing, what kind of love makes you go out? Uh, And I don't know what they said after that, but it was, the beginning of the song was there and it was, you know, coming from beyond the grave. And Will said, we've got to write this. Mm-hmm. And I said, we certainly do, and we've got to do it really well. Yeah. So we spent an afternoon crafting that song based on that little snippet of cassette that mm. was left over from a session that Will and Roy had had. What kind of love never turns you down? What kind of love lifts you off the ground? Turns your life around What kind of love Makes you go out In the wind and the driving rain What kind of love Runs through your heart With a pleasure so close to pain So I was so pleased to be part of that Yeah, yeah, incredible Yeah, you know, and, and it's a good song Yeah We recorded a a couple of records for MCA in the mid-1990s that didn't have a lot of commercial success at the time, Uh, but the song Please Remember Me from 1995's Jewel of the South album was covered by Tim McGraw in 1999, became number one country hit, top ten pop hit, another nominee for both ACM and CMA Song of the Year. As someone who has found a lot of success as an artist, but also has had a lot of artists 
cover your songs. Is it difficult for you to kind of let those songs go and see what other artists do with them? Or are you just kind of able to release those and be like, man, I love to hear different people interpret. Yeah, I can release them. Yeah. Early on a few times I've, I've, I spoke out uh, about something I didn't particularly like. And then embarrassed myself and I said, hang on a minute. If I want to do a particular version of one of my songs, then I should do it. Hmm. And after that, if somebody records one of my songs, I'm grateful. Man. And, I re- and, and I do not give myself permission to publicly pass judgment on whether I like it or not. Hmm. It's, you know, it's sort of the ultimate from the tip-top artists all the way down to, to artists who are unknown. Yeah. So with that, you know, I let it go. Yeah. And someone asked me about, please re- remember me. I was like, well, you know, your version is good, but Tim's, you know, is out there and he's got the hit. Are you jealous? And I said, let me tell you something about that song. Somewhere tonight, it's a hard song to sing. It bottom of your range to the top of your range. I can handle it pretty good now, but mm-hmm. then I could, you know, it was tough to get out yeah and I said I am grateful that somewhere tonight Tim McGraw is wrestling with that song (laughs) and it's not me because it's not an easy one to deliver yeah yeah um well after stints on Warner Brothers Columbia and MCA you made a critically acclaimed record for Sugar Hill in 2001 called the Houston Kid which featured a great collaboration with Johnny Cash I Walk the Line Revisited did switching to an indie label have an impact on your freedom in terms of, of how you made records and, and or, or was there any difference in terms of being with a, a major versus an indie? No, it was I made I made that shift myself before. I had you know, my those two records I made for MCA interestingly, uh, MCA paid me a lot of money. And boy, you know, with my upbringing, uh, I'm past that now. Somebody can pay me a lot of money now and I'm okay. But at that particular time, I felt like they were giving me so much money, I should give them what they want and need Hmm. rather than what I have, what's coming. So those two records that I made are my least uh, realized recordings. Hmm. Although, please remember me worked as a song. Yeah, uh, and it's nobody's fault but my own, you know, because I just, uh, you know, felt uh, that I owed the man something. Yeah, and boy, when I when it dawned on me a few years later about that, I said, "Oh, I see what's up with me." Then I I didn't make a record for four years. Hmm. Five years, maybe four or five years. Yeah. And when I came back with the Houston Kid, I didn't make it for a record company. I made it myself. Yeah. Made it out of my own pocket, and then found somebody to put it out. Hmm. And I did that for the next three records that I made. Yeah. I said, nope, I'm going to fund these records myself because, and so I'm making these records for me. Yeah. And. I kind of feel like my recording career started with the Houston Kid. Mm-hmm. 
to me, that's when I became a real recording artist. Mm. And everything that I've done since then, it's not it's far from my mo- most commercial yeah. uh, work, but it's my best work as a recording artist. Your most fulfilling. And yeah, it's yeah. like my it, around 1999, I actually found my voice as well. Huh. And it's gotten better progressively. Yeah. And, you know, now I feel pretty good about my voice. I can use it in ways that in 1983 I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. 1995 I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, in 2004, your song Fate's Right Hand won the Americana Award for Song of the Year. Killing Star Word, man, we're talking absurd. Spending $40 million just to give the man a bird. He's a king, she's a queen. The rap won't stick, get it on. That was one of those, you know, state of the world kind of songs. Um, can you reflect on on the role that social commentary has played in the development of of your writing over the years? Yeah, face right hand. It's hard to put a finger on exactly what I was thinking at that time. Uh, uh, well, things were starting to go in a way that that they've really become entrenched, you know, in terms of money and you know the world changes and those of us or anybody who wants it to remain the same and cries out about it not remaining the same you know brexit a lot of the the brits and you know the north you know it's like wow our country's changed and here you know our country's changed but you know what countries change you know the golden era in Greece, it lasted a thousand years, which that's a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. Things change. So, you know, there was a record, it came after that a little while where I wrote us, where we were invading Iraq, and I was so, so against that. I saw no real reason to do that. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, Don't Get Me Started at that time, and so that was political commentary yeah. but at the time I felt like yeah I don't know if this is such a good thing because I I'm contributing to a divide I don't want to contribute to a, a divide mm. but now I'm working on some stuff that I'm happy to contribute what I believe what I think what I feel mm-hmm. I can't claim to know yeah. But I think and feel. Yeah. You know, so I would be more inclined to speak my mind in song now than maybe I was in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of your more recent classics is It Ain't Over Yet, which was nominated for a, a Best American Roots Song Grammy, won the Americana Song of the Year. Um, and I understand that that song was kind of partially inspired by your relationship with Guy Clark. It ain't over yet. What you wanna bet? One more cigarette ain't gonna send you to the grave. It ain't over yet. I see a new girlfriend. Thinks you're living it. Great big old sparkle in her eye. 
totally inspired by my relationship with Guy Clark. <laughs> yeah. And my relationship with Susanna Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were both my friends as as a couple and individually. Yeah. And, you know, for my money, It Ain't Over Yet is one of the best songs I've ever written. Hmm. For my money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's hard for me to find anything wrong with that song. Yeah. I know that Guy was a close friend and, and Susanna as well. Um, but just briefly, and, and we'll kind of end it here, talk about how your relationship with Guy impacted who you are as a songwriter. Guy is the very best self-editor I've ever known as a songwriter. I learned a lot about self-editing from from Guy, and then I had the, uh, the pleasant experience of working, writing a book and working with a really great literary editor. So editing is so important to writing, and that's the reason I spent 35 years on Shame on the Moon, because it's just <laughs> a matter of editing. Yeah. I didn't do a good job of editing the first time. So that's the main thing I learned from Guy. That and uh, Guy was a great song actor. He could write words and he could imbue them with meaning with a certain tone or a, or a way of tossing a phrase away. He was an actor. So I really paid close attention, and you know, I think I, guys certainly influenced me that way. Sometimes I'm really successful at sort of acting with words and getting them across. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't sing it, you just speak it at the right moment. Yeah. And, and it makes the word more evocative. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rodney, this has been great. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.